gracious God and loving Father, how we thank you that from the rising of the sun until its going down throughout our earth, the name of the Lord has been praised. We praise you for those who have met with you in circumstances of privation and fear and under persecution, and those who have met with you in vast concourses of people where thunderous noises of praise have been offered up to you with joy by your children. Thank you that Jesus Christ's name is known throughout the earth, and that one day His kingdom will be established, and He will reign forever and ever. But Lord, as we come to You tonight in this room, our cry to You is that Jesus Christ would reign here, that He would subdue to Himself all the opposition and resistance of our hearts, our stubborn unbelief, our fears and anxieties. We pray that as He teaches us through His Word, in the power of His Holy Spirit, all of our minds may be fixed upon His truth, all of our wills bowed to His sovereign Lordship, all of our hearts taken up in faith and love and joy at the riches of His grace. So meet with us, we pray, and with some of us in a very special and unforgettable way tonight, we ask, for Jesus Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we are continuing a series of studies in Paul's letter to the Romans that began a number of weeks ago, I think in the month of August, and this evening we have moved uh, through the first two chapters and have got to the beginning of chapter 3, and we're going to read there the first four verses. Romans chapter 3 and from verse 1, and this is found in the Pew Bible, if you want to use the one that's in the back of the pew in front of you, the Black Bible, it's on page 940. Paul has been telling us that the gospel is the saving power of God, and this is why he's not ashamed of it. He's not going to be ashamed of it if he ever gets to Rome, which is the great secular power, because he knows that the power of the gospel is stronger than the power of Rome. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we know this to be true. Rome has crumbled, and the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. And so there was good reason for Paul not to be ashamed. But first of all, as he speaks about the good news of the gospel, he wants to teach us that we need, first of all, to hear the bad news. And of course, that's what we resist just give me the good news. And so he speaks about the way in which Gentile sinners have fallen under the condemnation of God. And then he turns to his own countrymen, and at great length he shows them also that they stand under the wrath and the condemnation of God. And we've already noticed in our studies that there isn't a trace of anti-Semitism in this, because the Apostle Paul, one, is simply expounding the truth of the Old Testament Scriptures, and two, he is himself a Jew. 
And as he continues this discussion, it's become a debate. He comes to these words in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then he says, what advantage has the due, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, and he quotes the 51st Psalm, the great Psalm of David's confession of sin, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. I first met him, I'm not sure exactly what age I was, but I was in my teens and beginning a a lifelong avocation of reading crime novels, detective mysteries. And I was 16 or 17 years old when I met, I mean in a literary fashion, I met one of the greatest detectives of all time. G.K. Chesterton's detective, Father Brown. Father Brown. Every great detective has his or her own technique of detection. And Father Brown had the very best technique of detection. He was a wizard of detection. He didn't call in CSI. He didn't do fingerprinting. Uh, He didn't really use the old Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass. He didn't smoke opium, as Sherlock Holmes seemed to have done from time to time, uh, much to my regret. All he did was search his own heart. And when he was asked how it was that he could see why a criminal having done this would do that, he didn't go to the great manuals of criminology or to any of the great schools of forensic science in London of those days. He simply looked at his own heart. He had heard enough people confess their sins, and he had seen enough sin in his own heart to know how sin works. And I think if we're ever to catch the flavor of the of the relentlessness of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 when he turns to his Jewish kinsmen. He tells us later his heart is broken because they do not, and many of them will not, trust in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. When he turns to them and pursues them relentlessly to seek to bring them to the place he eventually reaches in chapter 3 verse 20, when every mouth is shut and the whole world is held guilty before God, we need to understand that part of the reason for this relentlessness was that the Apostle Paul needed that relentlessness himself. And I have very little doubt, as the Apostle has said to the Jews, you know, your works cannot save you nor can having the special revelation of God save you. You are not saved because you have the Bible in your home or the Bible in your pulpit or even because the Bible is preached in your pulpit. Nor can circumcision 
That sign that was given to Jewish boys when they were eight days old, when the foreskin was cut off to mark them from the beginning of their lives as those who belonged to the family to whom God had given a gracious promise of salvation through Abraham, of blessing that would reach to the ends of the earth, says the Apostle Paul, when they say, but yes, we understand why Gentiles are condemned because they are sinners. We may have sinned, but we have circumcision. And Paul says, but if you have the mark of circumcision and don't live as people whose hearts have been consecrated or circumcised to the Lord, if you're not somebody who has been cut off from living for yourself and living for this world to be a person who is utterly devoted to the Lord, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And indeed, if somebody who has never been circumcised by God's grace is consecrated to the Lord, that person, although physically uncircumcised, is part of God's circumcised people. And this, of course, was revolutionary. And it had been revolutionary to Saul of Tarsus when he had first heard it. And I think, at least from the way in which I read the Acts of the Apostles, it looks as though the person from whom Saul of Tarsus first heard this was the martyr Stephen. Because Luke gives us a little indication that when Stephen, the first martyr, began publicly to preach the gospel to his Jewish friends, he did it in the synagogue in Jerusalem to which Saul of Tarsus most likely belonged, since it was the synagogue of the freedmen which included people who had come to Jerusalem from, among other places, Tarsus. And we're told in a very striking statement by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles that nobody was able to withstand Stephen's argument. And I think that included Saul of Tarsus. And by what we read in Paul's letters, it seems clear Saul of Tarsus had never been bested or beaten in an argument of a religious nature in all his life. He had outzealed all of his contemporaries. He says in Philippians 3, as far as the law of God was concerned, he was blameless, and he had been circumcised on the eighth day. He had everything religiously. And here comes Stephen, and he's using the Old Testament Scriptures, and he's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, and he is relentlessly pursuing his fellow countrymen into such a corner that eventually they will rise up and they will stone him to death. And I actually have very little doubt that under Stephen's preaching, the very arguments of self-defense that Paul has been using in Romans chapter 2 and continues to use in Romans chapter 3, he felt so powerfully because he himself had used them against Stephen until God had got him into a corner, until Christ had visited him when he was furious on the Damascus road. 
partly furious out of anger and jealousy for what he had seen of the grace of God in the martyr Stephen, whose arguments he had tried to destroy, but whose arguments had been like arrows entering into his conscience, and he could never escape them. And so, when the Lord Jesus met with him, he said, Saul, it is impossible for you to kick against the gods. It's very interesting in the verses that follow our passage tonight, Paul actually, not accidentally because it's under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but he almost unconsciously, do you notice, slips into the first person singular. Here he is, he's arguing the case with the Jews and drawing them into a corner to show them their great need of salvation in Jesus Christ, and then suddenly interjects himself as though he were back there, as though he were arguing with Stephen. And of course, his whole burden of concern here is that what he is teaching about the sinfulness not only of the Gentile, but the sinfulness of the Jew seems to deny two basic things and undermine two absolute fundamentals of his contemporaries' view of life. First of all, Paul seems to be denying the privileges that God gave to the Jews. And more than that, he seems to be denying that God is faithful to His word of promise. And it's these two things he takes up in these verses 1 through 4 that we're thinking about together this evening. As relentlessly, and I mean relentlessly, Paul operates not as a detective, but as a prosecuting counsel to bring sinners to their knees to call upon God for mercy. That's what he's doing in these opening chapters in Romans. And that's what we are doing preaching these verses from this pulpit. My heart's desire is that this word would bring us to our knees before Him. And then when we cry for mercy, we would begin to discover just how amazing God's saving grace really is. And I make no apology for this. I make absolutely no apology for this basic principle that the message of the gospel first drives me to my knees and then raises me to the joys of heaven. And I can never taste the latter until God has broken my hard heart and readied me by bringing me to a sense of my sinfulness, which is here the former. But you see, Paul is saying your circumcision counts for nothing. It would be like somebody saying your baptism counts for absolutely nothing unless your life is without reservation given over to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you can understand why they were so furious. You could preach that message in many a church 
throughout the world, and people would rise up with all their sophistication and be sure to do everything they could to shut your mouth. Isn't that the case? Across the denominations, across the divides. How dare you say that? I was baptized in such and such a church by the Reverend Dr. So-and-so. How dare you say that means nothing? You're denying all the privileges of being a Presbyterian or an Anglican or a Baptist or whatever. So you can understand the sense of hostility because, you see, when a religious man or woman has the false foundations on which they are resting their hope for their salvation pulled away from them, the religious man or woman is the person who becomes most hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They crucified the Savior. They stoned Stephen to death. They eventually executed the Apostle Paul because the religious person who has never experienced the saving grace of God is the person who is most hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, as Paul argues this case so relentlessly, so remorselessly, the Jew is, as it were, coming to the last line of his defense, and it's here in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, you are saying there is no advantage in being a Jew. You are saying there is no value in circumcision. You've destroyed Old Testament religion. God gave us circumcision. Moses commanded us that there should be circumcision. Now, what is Paul's answer? Well, his answer is to say, you have totally misunderstood me. Totally misunderstood me. I did not say there was no advantage in being a Jew. I did not say there was no privilege in being circumcised. I said that if you have had those privileges and have not taken them with both hands, those privileges will rise as witnesses to prosecute you. And it is you who have turned them into disadvantages. And you see how he puts it. He says, what advantage is the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Being a Jew, being circumcised. Well, he says, actually, much in every way. Now, you don't expect that, do you? He's been railing against these Jews and their dependence on circumcision, and they're saying, you are saying, there's no advantage to being a Jew, no advantage to being circumcision. Paul says, on the contrary, there is much advantage to belonging to God's covenant people. For example, he says, first of all, notice what he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were given the sacred Scriptures, oracles, authoritative words. That's what it means. The Jews were given an authoritative revelation from God Himself, and they were the only people who received it. They had the Scriptures. 
as Jeremiah uh, records it, the notion of God's words put into His mouth to give to God's people. They had a revelation that would guide them to grace and salvation through faith in the Messiah. And later on in his final letter, the apostle will underline this when he writes to young Timothy, who, although he had not been circumcised, was brought up in a home where his mother was a Jewess. And he said, Timothy, has ever dawned on you the privileges that you've had? From your infancy, from your childhood, you have known the sacred Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that have been breathed out by God, as He says at the end of the chapter, and are are useful for teaching you, for rebuking you, for transforming you, for for equipping you to be a, a servant of God. You have had this amazing privilege of being given the Word of God in your hands and in your home. What a privilege that was, and what a privilege that is. Most of you know that I wasn't brought up in a Bible reading home or a home where we went to church I was at one religious service, maybe two, with my parents before my 14th birthday. And so, because by God's grace I was led into the covenant community from outside of that covenant community, and then my parents led into that covenant community from outside when people would say, for example, how did you get to Christ? What's your story? I would tell them my story. Sometimes, sometimes those who had been brought up in Christian homes would say to me, oh, I wish I hadn't been brought up in a Christian home. You ever heard anybody say that? Perhaps some of you, some of you young people have been brought up in Christian homes, and you hear… Now, sometimes Christians can over-exaggerate the drama of their conversion, but you hear people who have had very wonderful experiences of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, you think to yourself, it must be marvelous, absolutely marvelous to have that kind of radical spiritual experience. I'd rather have been brought up in a Christian home, you know, to have the privileges of knowing what it was to see Christ in the earliest days of my life, to have His Word read to me. I could happily have done without the drama if I'd had 14 years of spiritual nourishment and the privilege of Christian parents. Don't say that, dear friends. But not only don't say that, and here's the thing, do you say that because you've squandered your privileges, do you? Do you say that because you've squandered your privileges? It's the same God. It's the same Christ. Your sin's the same. Your need's the same. The world's need's the same. Your need of grace is no different. But you've had this privilege Perhaps you've had the privilege of being baptized, and that sign has been upon you. 
You've had the Word of God read. You've been dragged along to church, and you've come kicking and screaming. That's an inestimable privilege. You've had parents who have been prepared to have you kicking and screaming rather than you not to have the privileges. But you see, for that reason, you and I need to understand, as we think about this, you and I need to understand that we're not defended by our baptism or by our parents or by the fact the Bible has been read in our home. We are not defended from these things, from the tremendous responsibility to respond to them with lavish, heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ, love towards Him, and a willingness to do absolutely anything for Him. You notice the language Paul uses here. He says, do they have privileges? They have been entrusted with the oracles of God. The Word of God has been put right into their hands But the question is not, did you have the Word of God in your home? The question is, did the Word of God make its way right into your heart and bring you to bow before Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus Christ, be my Savior, reign over me as my Lord, and lead me to go anywhere, do anything, give anything, sacrifice anything, suffer anything, and all for your glory. You see, the people to whom he was speaking were covenant children. I'm kind of glad we don't too often use that expression in our church because I have a great fear sometimes when I'm visiting churches and they say, now our covenant children will leave. I want to say, what do you mean when you say your covenant children? Do you mean my children because they've been brought up in the church, have got some kind of special defense mechanisms about their need of grace built into them? that they're not like the riffraff of the world that needs special saving grace? But you see, if you are a covenant child, that's an extraordinary privilege. But the issue is, what are you doing with your privileges? What are you doing with your privileges? Well, what are you doing? Some of you are 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 18, and some of you are are students, and you've got your whole life in front of you, and you've been invested with the greatest privilege any youngster could ever be given in any place, in any point in history, in all the world. And here's the thing, how are you responding? Are you Christ's? Are you really Christ's? What do you feel in your heart when I ask you that question? Do you want to stand up and say, yes, I am really Christ's? Because you see, dear ones, if we can't say that, we're in danger of ending up with these Jews saying, but I've got all these privileges. I have all these privileges. 
when God is saying to you, what are you doing in response to the privileges I've given to you? What advantage has the Jew? Well, these are overwhelming advantages. If you've been brought up in a Christian home, you are in the vast minority in this world. God has loaded you with privileges. So, what are you doing about them? Are you responding to them? You believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in Him and saying, Lord Jesus, there are all so many possibilities before my life, but there is one thing that is as settled in my heart as it is in the heavens. I am yours. I am yours. Ah, but then there's a little difficult to follow Paul's mind precisely at this point, but it it looks as though there's one kind of stuttering objection that follows. Well, he's saying, someone will say, well, what if some were unfaithful? Are you saying God doesn't keep His promises? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, that's pretty pathetic, really. Yes, it's part of the Holy Scriptures, but it's actually a pretty pathetic argument. And you see, the truth of the matter is, when the Apostle Paul has gone, as it were, for the spiritual jugular and dealt with the real issue, then there will be those who will, as it were, say, oh, well, you're really saying that God doesn't keep His promises because He promised that we would be His special people. And now you are saying God doesn't keep His promises. So, where are your arguments now? And here comes the stroke of genius. He just needs to say one name, actually, here. He doesn't use it, but he as much as says it. He says, who is our greatest king? Who is the man after God's own heart? Who is the Lord's anointed? Whose psalms do we sing? He was circumcised. He had the oracles of God. But you see, great King David, and this is why he cites Psalm 51, great King David was relentlessly pursued by that Old Testament Paul, Nathan the prophet, until his heart was exposed and his sin was revealed, and until circumcised as he was, possessing the oracles of God as he did, full of the privileges, the amazing privileges of a Christian home, knowing that his family tree included some of the most remarkable providences of God in all history. That circumcised, privileged man says in the 51st Psalm, that God is justified in His words of condemnation, and He is vindicated when He judges sinners like me, sinners like me. And you see what He's saying? 
Well, he's really saying the same thing over again, isn't he? He's saying privileges bring responsibility. And an unwillingness to respond to privileges with a faith that is commensurate to those privileges and a consecration that is commensurate to those privileges leads actually to an even greater hardness of heart and indeed condemnation. And so he's saying to them, you've had all the privileges mortal man has ever had. It isn't that God has failed, it is that you have been faithless. It isn't that there are no privileges, it is that you have squandered them. And you see what he's doing, he's wrestling them, he's longing to wrestle them to the ground in the hope that they will confess their sin and their brokenness and their absolute helplessness. And he knows what they're saying because he's been there himself. As he says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I had, I had all this on the credit side of my life. I, I, I had been circumcised. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. As far as the law-keeping was concerned, I thought I was absolutely perfect. I had no need because I was a child of the covenant. And then God brought a true believer into his life, and he realized, I think he must have realized almost the moment that Stephen began to show the grace and wisdom of God, I think he must have realized he wasn't a believer at all. He was sham, absolute sham. And so he started arguing, and he argued out loud. We argue quietly. We argue from the pew, don't we? I've, I've sat in pews. I know how to argue from pews. Very well, I know how to argue from pews. Well, that's for him. How dare he speak in that way? He's almost suggesting that we are not a special people, that we are sinners. Or as I heard on more than one occasion as a very young minister being shaken hands with at the door of churches by people under whose skin the Word of God had gotten you're obviously a very zealous young man. <laughs> you see? And caring nothing about their eternal salvation. And defending themselves. Poor young man, he'll grow up. He'll lose his zeal. He'll become moderate and temperate like the rest of us who know that we can jolly well depend upon our privileges for our salvation, and if need be, we will tell God Himself. I was a member of such and such a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian church. And it's Jesus who tells us that there will be those in the last day who will give to Him a litany of their performances as members of the church even to doing many mighty things in Jesus' name. And He will say, I never knew you.
And you see, that's the key. It's not, you never knew about me, but you never came to me and trusted me and opened your life to me and bowed before me as your Lord and Savior. You never wanted me to know you, you see. And that's the test, isn't it? That's the test of Jesus' lordship in my life when I say, Jesus, go anywhere, look at anything, deal with anything, but please, Lord Jesus, be my Savior and Lord. And I realize that without that response, all my privileges are nothing. Paul used a very interesting verb in the previous chapter. He spoke about the Jews resting in their privileges. Now, here's my question. What are you resting in tonight? What are you resting in? Or what are the thoughts that come to your mind if if like, if like Saul of Tarsus, God were pursuing you in these days as we've been studying these dark chapters in Romans. We'll come on to some wonderfully bright chapters in Romans, but as we've been studying these dark chapters in Romans, the defenses going up, the calluses growing as you keep Paul at bay and God's Word at bay, and inwardly you're saying, I'll I'll do very fine on my own. Paul's great desire is to break through all that, to bring you, to bring me to my knees, and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. My dear friends, I can't imagine in this world um, a greater shock that a middle-aged or even an older person might experience than to discover after all these years I've never really been Christ's. But you could have that shock at the age of 14 or 15 or 16 or 17. And that's the issue tonight. Are you Christ's? Because if you're not Christ's, you're not Christ's. Well, are you Christ's? And may it be if you're not, in these days, Christ is pressing you into a corner. And He's doing things providentially in your life. He's already begun to do them in your life. You just wondered what was happening. Why were these things happening? Why were these things going wrong? And now you see it's almost as though He's coming out into the open, and He's speaking to us out of His Word while He simultaneously begins to work in the providential circumstances of our lives to make us realize that we're not really who we thought we were. 
would to God that in the present financial crisis that would happen to multitudes of middle-aged men and women. And would to God it would happen to you and to me. And that as it happens, this place might become a place where an army of young boys and young girls who have had all the privileges in the world of a Christian home might respond to those privileges and say, Lord, be merciful also to me, for I too am a sinner, and I bow before you, unreservedly bow before you as my Lord and Master, and by your grace from this hour, I will do anything, give anything, sacrifice anything, go anywhere, at any cost, at any time, so long as you will be my Lord. And then, by God's grace, I think He would look down upon us as a fellowship, as a people, and say, now there's a people who are really enjoying their privileges. Do you know what the old-timers used to say? They used to say the problem with most people in most churches is that we're living way beneath the level of our privileges. But oh, when you begin to taste them, this place would just be the most glorious place in the world to be for all of us. Don't you want that? Don't you want Christ? Let me offer Him to you. Now you take Him, will you? As your Savior and Lord, and He'll be both forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how relentless Your grace seems to us to be, but how sore for us how sore for all of our self-righteousness to be stripped away by Your Word. How sore for those things that we have depended upon so foolishly to be snatched out of our hands. But how glorious that You put Jesus Christ into our hands and into our hearts and into our lives. And we want this night, as this Lord's Day comes to an end, we want to, to trust in Him. Lord Jesus, be our Savior. And we want, with all our needs, all our struggles, all our sins, all our addictions, all our failures, all the messes that we need to try to repair, we want Him to be our Lord. So be our Savior, Lord Jesus, and come and reign over us and fill us with an overwhelming sense that we surely must be the most privileged people on this planet. Help us to live for your glory. We ask it in your name.